Welcome to the Intentifiers podcast. I'm your host, Jody Rye, bringing to you stories of intent from folks looking for more humanity in their workplaces through the lens of intentionality. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Ramita. Hi, Jode. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. I'm so excited that you were um, willing to and to be a part of this podcast series. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing what you'd like to share around intent and, and a story that links to that for you. Where would you like to start? What you're doing is such a wonderful thing. It makes you reflect. And I have definitely me um, a lot on what the word intent means and what it sort of people say that I do it I sort of practice yoga as much as I can and one of the first things you're meant to do in yoga is set an intention for yourself for that practice and so I've kind of grown with this word and I sort of redefine it for myself and I start thinking it's great to make an intention for the hour then it's great to make an intention for the for the day or then the week or then your long-term goals and I suppose one of the things that's made me reflect on with your beautiful um phrase intensification is you know, where am I today as a mother, as a wife, as a sibling, as a daughter? And what are my intentions for, for my for what I've got left, to, you know, to give and what, what time we have left together mm. here? Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's kind of morbid. I don't mean it to be, but, um, you know, <laughs> what is it that we want to achieve <laughs> while we are lucky enough to be on the earth and we're, uh, we're breathing and healthy and we're kind of... Yeah. Well, and I think when you say intention, it's very much this idea around... Um, Kate, where am I at right now? And now what does that, what does that mean in terms of moving forward? And so I'm, I'm curious yeah. and curious about you sharing with folks, um, how is it that you got to where you are right now? Like as an example, even just physically speaking, you are in Singapore right now and I'm in Vancouver and we're doing this recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were with you. Yeah, I know that, in, that's so mad. Uh, we met so many years ago in Vancouver <laughs> and, and I've sort of then since then lived in cities so and uh, you know that's the beautiful thing that you don't know um where life is going to take you and i think that's probably been my biggest life lesson um hmm. i was sort of saying earlier to you that you don't know where you shape your ideologies or where you know i think it comes from a whole mass of things culturally you know you're from your religion or from your family or from your teachers or from what tv shows you grew up with or whatever your your views and hopes are of where you think your life is going to head but life happens and sometimes it happens on a in a way that, that nothing in your mind or brain or heart could ever be ready for and mm. i think i learned that lesson uh pretty quickly i know lots of people have adversities and have hardships in life and it's, it's difficult um to accept and I think this word acceptance is what really 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 hit me when I had to in my probably late 30s early for turning 40 um really understand what the word acceptance means and I I lost my mum as you know when I was 13 and I thought I'd accepted the loss of my mum quite well and and the journey that my parents uh, or my dad made after that as a widow Er, and the decisions he made to remarry and raise his family, um, which were his decisions, but the, how they impacted me as a kid, uh, as a teenager, I suppose, not a kid, um, and then shaped my ideologies sort of through uh, through that time and, mm. and that sort of tragic uh, event. Uh, it's probably made me who I am today, but it wasn't easy to accept, and it took me quite a long time, and I think... Uh, maybe as, as you may appreciate we come from a culture where we don't I don't study so I've never studied psychology I don't really look into the mind and the brain and the feelings and the emotional side of life too much I know I feel a lot but I've never been taught to express them very well mm. um culturally as a um 
as an Indian girl growing up in a city where I had lots of family, I still wasn't really um, taught the idea that we talk through our feelings and we, we, we accept what we're feeling at that moment and we move past. It's just sort of an untold truth that you move, pick up, move on, and you're told what you're told, and, and your life carries on. And I think for many, many years, that probably did work for me. I, I was told that this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to get my mom, your dad's going to bring you a stepmom, and you're going to be raised in this way. And we went through this emotions. We really did. Mm. I mean, obviously, it binded the three of our siblings so closely uh, because we were going through this shared experience and it bonded us with our grandma and like you know people other things that we kind of needed to get through it but nobody ever stopped to talk to us about how we were feeling through all of these really big um, events and I think um, y- y- when you give birth I think someone told me uh, in fact one of my uh, physicians told me that when you breathe when you give birth well some of the hormones that you're releasing are the exact same ones that you do when you're grieving hmm. Um, which I hadn't quite been aware of because I obviously thought it was natural for me to be missing my mum when I had my daughter. But actually, (laughs) Mm. um, I was probably grieving again. I went through the whole process of of losing my mum all over again because then I lost the mum that could have helped me share this experience as well. So that kind of hit me quite hard. But uh, again, I used my own coping mechanisms to deal with it and move on, move on, move on, mm-hmm. um, and building a life for her and for, for the family that we were becoming. Um, that was going to be my perfect view of whatever that family was, um, based on the different daydreaming things I must have done, or books I'd read, or shows I watched, or things that my mum had done for us when we were kids. I was so desperate to recreate what my mum had created for us when mm. we were children. Um, so you're kind of moseying along and you're kind of doing what you're doing and you think you've accepted it again. And, you know, and then actually what Ariana Huffington calls her kind of thrive, you know, that moment, the epiphany, the moment that you wake up into this kind of crazy realization that you're living, not a falsehood because it is your life, but you're building something that's not really based on acceptance. You're just, you're, you're telling yourself. And I think your mind is such a powerful place. You can sort of think, it can tell, you can tell anything to yourself and start believing Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're not careful, it can lead to quite dangerous thoughts, yeah. can't it? Um, well, you talked about, I just wanted to take you back for a quick second when you talked about acceptance yeah. and, and when your mom, um, you know, an auntie passed and, and the idea of almost like forced acceptance. So although like, you know, yeah. you had your brother and your sister and a lot of other family around in terms of support, there's also this sort of like... Um, not a double-edged sword but like it's not stigma necessarily but it's like this drape like there's this drape that's like yeah. okay we're gonna suck it up and we're gonna move on and I know I have a support but it's almost like like you said no one really talked about how, how do you actually move on and truly deeply accept here's here's my life now and here's what I'm gonna do in terms of moving on that can be quite powerful in terms of talking through your emotions and really understanding what you're feeling but if it doesn't happen, like you said, you just sort of move along and, and, and then, yeah. and then you have another life experience. And then that, and in this case, as you described, you know, your, your, the next major life experience for you is having Sienna. And so then what was that like? You now have, um, you're now married, you now have Sienna as your daughter and, and then, and then what's, what's the next life stage that comes up? Well, yeah, dealing with, 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 you know, dealing with all of that and being a mum without your mum, I suppose you hmm. miss her massively. And then you kind of grow that, you've got the joy that Sienna brought and the incredible, um, feelings of, you know, you, 
love that you you get from having your own baby which obviously you know as a mom as well is is incredible so you sort of can't wait to recreate that with baby number two <laughs> and uh, I mean obviously all the hard stuff goes with it obviously you know the, the, the sleepless nights and all of this but I think um uh, maybe God or whoever the powers above are are knew I was about to hit a tough rock so Sienna was one of the most angelic babies to to, to have uh, as a first mom so I might have been um a first time mom I might have been deceived into thinking motherhood was the best thing in the world and again it's whether it's escaping reality you know I think my, my if I'm honest if I go back one step and I think about my move to London in the first place um it's probably because I didn't want to accept the life I had in Vancouver I wanted an escape I wanted mm. to get out I wanted I, I you know I probably couldn't deal with it anymore and I reached my tether and I wanted to get out of Vancouver um even if it was just for a bit you know I just I didn't know what was going to come later on obviously you know meeting Paris and then staying on in, in London and moving to New York um was a whole other surprise but but um again if if I if I'm honest with myself I think that flight to London when I booked it was an escape it was definitely mm. a way of, I'm not going to call myself a coward but it was I've done I did a lot of time in Vancouver in a tough situation with a tough family life that I didn't want to have anymore and I wanted to leave so anyhow then you become this mum and you're lost in all of these lovely baby groups and love meeting new parents <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and our family grew and we were blessed with Ishan now I think that as, as I've shared before Ishan is you know is a beautiful little boy but has been diagnosed since he you know we've uh, now know he has autism we didn't know that at the beginning but he was difficult and he was harder to um engage with as a baby than sienna was i was slightly in a, a miffed state because i thought god i've done it all at once this can't be that hard why is it so hard mm. and of course i was grieving um my mum again so there was emotions around missing someone to talk to about all of this and a lot of it was coming down to people feeding me information on how boys and girls are different and you should just be don't worry and not no babies are alike and obviously I knew I shouldn't be comparing the two but Paris probably a bit more than me accepted that Ishan was different way more than I did mm. right from the early stages of his development even though he hit all of his sort of milestones as a pediatrician would check off um, other than speech perfectly um, I just kept telling myself he's a delayed talker and, and Paris felt probably in his gut who uh, was ready to accept that there might be something more um, way sooner than I did and, mm. and actually it took quite a few years of doctor searching and, and, and finding people to talk to about our son's lack of speech and communication uh, and engagement with sort of social things um, which is hard for a couple like Paris and I were and Sienna, his big sister, is also extremely sociable um, and likes being around other people. Uh, our toddler was, you know, hiding from all of that, didn't want to be anywhere near other people and wanted to hide when there were parties. So we were just like confused by the whole thing. Um, and then, of course, that, that was my big, probably the biggest hurdle for me was dealing with his diagnosis of autism. Um, and, which didn't happen straight away. We were told he had social communication disorder, and mm. dyspraxia, and then this, as it turns out, actually he has all of it. Um, he has got anxiety, he has got you know, dyspraxia, he has got <laughs> delayed communication, but ultimately, um, and, and, and since my work and teaching has taught me, we now know that autism is, is very, very rarely on its own. It doesn't exist on its own. Comorbidity is a genuinely big thing with kids with any kind of learning or neurodevelopmental kind of hmm. uh, concerns. So he, he has got autism as one of his primary uh, issues, but there's lots of things that go around that as well. So. Hmm. 
where we were on another learning journey and one of acceptance, which I think I probably, so he's now nine. He was officially diagnosed at four and I probably spent till he was five or six uh, trying to understand what he had and then accepting it probably uh, fundamentally only in the last three, four years. Hmm. And why do you think how yeah. much of that, how much of that weighed? Well, why do you think that is? Like you said, Paris might have, um, early, I want to say early adopter, but I don't mean that in a disrespectful way that he just sort of in his gut, like yeah. you said, knew it. And I wonder how much of his his background, his upbringing, what maybe that's just the way his brain's wired um, and how his heart's wired. Where he's like, okay, this is what, this is what it is going to be. Um, but for you, it wasn't that case. And so how, how much of that do you think weighed in on your past experiences in your life? Um, you know, auntie not being around anymore. Did, have yeah. you thought about that? Has that, has that weighed on you in terms of you, you as a woman, why the acceptance piece? Like, what was that like once Ashan was born and you said it took three to four years or so? I was in, yeah, I was in denial a bit like my mom. I think it's weird. I don't, again, it could be the way I'm wired. I remember when she was she had first passed away obviously this is back in the time where you still had to rent your movies at a video store you just download them on netflix and um they would we would we obviously had our video card with her id on it and we would take it to go and recreate every friday night was movie night at our house movie and pizza and movie night and um we wanted to carry that tradition on desperately even after she'd passed away so we run to the video store on a friday uh, I guess partly to, create, to keep her memory alive, but I could not say the words when they said, well, where's your mum? I would say, oh, she's at home, um, but she's given us her card. Wow. I could not say my mum passed away. Like, I just couldn't say it. And one, I, didn't, I remember this moment of what Brené Brown very kindly now makes me think was shame when the guy looked at us because obviously he'd come up on his computer as deceased. And he actually said that word, and I just threw the video and ran out of the shop because I couldn't face the fact that someone had out, like someone said the word that my mom was had passed away and used the word deceased. And she says that, you know, I don't understand that the membership that's coming up as this person is deceased. And I was like, and this was obviously weeks later, obviously by the time all the documentation goes in, I don't know how it works. And miraculously all technology works out and they realize that mom was no longer around. And the fact that he used the actual word hmm. freaked me out. Um, and the actual word autism freaked me out so much I didn't want to go there I just didn't not want to go there even though with my mum I'd been there with the funeral I'd seen you know I'd seen it all and I don't know if it was I didn't want people to feel sorry for me and treat me differently I wanted to be accepted for who I was which was a happy-go-lucky person um in my view anyway and then I didn't want to start having sorry looks from people mm. I guess it's a, what people view you as I don't know I remember because I started high school I didn't want any of my new friends from my new high school to know that I didn't have a mom I don't know, it was all very 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 strange this weird life I'd created in my head that wasn't supposed to be shared with other people and I don't know if that comes from also a little bit that we don't share um in our Indian community very much what you know if something's happening at home we don't really hang your dirty out laundry out do you for the totally. public to see you it's, keep it you keep it to yourself yeah I think especially um when it's stuff that we like you use the word shame, I think if there's any inkling or sense that it's going to cause disrepute or like you said, shame, then definitely you don't let that be seen. But yet, you know, look at our weddings and our celebrations. That's all fine. Like anything that's kind of happy and good, you can celebrate all of that. Even the birth of our children ends up being a big deal. 
But if there's anything that yeah. that looks or smells like it's going to be different than, I don't even know what, different than what it's supposed to be, I, apparently we're not supposed to share that. Like, yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. That's a lot so of pressure. It's a lot. It's a lot. And obviously living in London with family now in Vancouver and having this little boy and not really knowing who to talk to about it because... You start to, like you said earlier about this word rat race, you're on this thing of getting your kids into like the right schools and doing it in, in London's insane. But, you know, you're, I'm sure all places are. Vancouver must be similar now. I'm, I imagine it wasn't when we were growing up. But, you know, interviews for schools uh, started at the age of two and a half. And so Sienna got, you know, walked herself into, chatted her way into some interview to get into a school that we were proud of her for her to get into. And we assumed Deshaun would follow this same path. And, of course, wasn't happening he wasn't talking at this point and just even saying it to the headmistress of the school to say you know can I should I sit my son for this I did not want to believe that he wasn't going to do the same things mm. and have the same experiences as Sienna was going to have um until I, I don't know if you want to call it or if it builds on the whole shame thing again but it was uh and nobody talked to me about having therapy really um ever I don't think and my school counselor maybe in high school once mentioned the word going to some counseling when my mum passed away we had one family session together and when we were to, to, due to book another one my dad said oh we've had it we've talked about it and that was one session <laughs> and we never went back so I I know I don't know you're 13 you don't what are you supposed to know about counseling I, I never knew that and I guess by all intents and purposes in high school I was a kid that looked and did what was supposed to be doing you know I wasn't into the, the rebellion things my parents would have you know struggled with so I was a pretty straight and on narrow child as you know I met you probably in my last year of high school um did all the bright things got my scholarship got into the right universities uh, it, it was all going to my dad as it should yeah so there was never any cause for concern um clearly there is a point where you reach your bubbling you know you you, you that like or I think in, in the book Thrive she says she wakes up in a pool of blood or something ridiculous like that and if I draw a parallel pool of blood for myself it was actually when my sister had her first baby and mm. I flew to Ottawa to be with her because I didn't want her to be on her own as I was with Sienna um, and actually I don't know if it was jet lag I don't know what it was I, had to, I took Sienna with me I couldn't take both kids but I did take Sienna with me which was probably silly in, in hindsight but I couldn't leave both kids with with my mother-in-law and my husband. So I took Sienna with me. It was Christmas break and she'd worn these brand new Uggs, which was crazy of me to buy anyway for her, but she got them as a present <laughs> at Christmas or something. And they were gorgeous. Have I told you this story already? No, you know I'm just, I'm just laughing. Um, were, that's so you to uh, say that. <laughs> I've, shared, I've shared it with so many people. Yeah, my, I created this little monster of the fashionista at the age of whatever it was. She wanted these incredibly beautiful suede purple bowed satin bowed Uggs spent a fortune on them and it was snowing in Ottawa as you know and um, our, our, my nephew was born in, in the middle of winter so we had four feet of snow everywhere and she said I want to wear my new Uggs like we're going out to pick up some breakfast or something for her for my sister and I said you're not going to wear them it's snowing and snow is wet and wet doesn't work on suede I'll try convincing a six-year-old that she wasn't going to wear her Uggs and she said I'm going to be so careful I'm going to be so careful um I'm sure it was the fact that we, you know, I was, again, missing my mum. Uh, my sister's new baby was up all night. We were jet-lagged. I, I, you can make all the excuses you want in the world, obviously. I mean, I'm not saying it was justified in what I did. But my daughter's Uggs getting stomped on in which she stabbed into a, a slushy, snowy puddle. I looked down and these Uggs were just 
trashed and they were brand new and I just started screaming and I'd forgotten I had forgotten how careful Canadians are around their I don't know social services (laughs) I was so publicly shamed by another woman in Ottawa who had watched me take a strip out of my daughter for this shoe being ruined that she actually was so scared for the safety of my daughter she followed us home (gasps) oh my god oh yeah Oh, yeah. And actually, there was a point where Sienna actually slipped, too. Like, she kind of fell in the snow and she thought I pushed her over and she threatened to call the police. And oh, my gosh. All of this, all of this falling in front of me and this moment where I thought I could lose my job. I'm a teacher back in London. No one. And by the way, just to put this into frame of reference no one in London would have batted an eyelid I'm pretty confident while I was screaming at my child <laughs> on the road <laughs> you know what and you know, what's interesting, and you know what's interesting yeah. is I'm sure knowing your your heart and your personality that this was this really was like you said the moment where you realized okay something is not right and I wonder if okay. it's po- poetic that it happened in Canada I wonder if if there's something there where you say it's true because like it's just interesting that it happened here you know and and you said maybe it was this this culmination of um you know the the sort of motherhood role that you did take on after auntie passed and now you know your sister's got uh, has a new baby and who knows what it was but it's just interesting that that it happened here and that you like you said somebody and somebody did call you out because had it been london maybe that maybe this would be a different story oh yeah yeah, very I would much. have carried on yelling at her, and <laughs> no one would have, you know, I would have thought afterwards I shouldn't have yelled so long. But it was the way, again, if you think about it, if I, you know, really, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Brené Brown's kind of books mm-hmm. and podcasts and TED Talks. This whole thing of shame is a big thing, you know, you're not, ta- you're not meant to be ashamed. And I was so ashamed. Um, lo and behold, because, you know, the, about two hours later, there was a police car that drove up to my sister's house just to make sure Sienna was fine. And I, I could not believe where I was oh at this point gosh. in my life. Um, luckily, he interviewed Sienna and he interviewed us separately and he met my sister and he saw the newborn baby and he realized and he said, well, that and I didn't realize she was standing outside the house for about an hour um, watching us, I suppose, or making sure that nothing happened. And I didn't know any of this. Is this the same same Ottawa trip when you and I saw each other? Yes, yeah, because I've, I mean, I've been, yes, no, I need to, didn't stay. You didn't even tell me then. I saw you in real life and you didn't tell me this happened. I know. No, I, I couldn't remember because I came back to London and I told loads of people, so I wasn't sure if I told you or not. That was, it was on that flight home. I got off the plane, got to London. I looked at Paris. I said, I'm going into therapy. I need to deal with my frustrations. You know, I was angry, angry that we're in a situation. You know, I was angry that we didn't have a mum that was here with us. But that actual woman, and whether she'll know it or not, she'll ever hear this, her following me home (laughs) um, and calling me out on um, publicly shouting at my daughter about it. And it wasn't about the Uggs. Clearly, it wasn't about the Uggs, but that was my tipping point. And I think when when I realised that I was losing control of myself, that's, and again, I grew up in a Punjabi, in North Indian home where losing your, and all good or bad, you know, when you're on the dance floor, you lose you say, all senses. When you're angry, sometimes you can lose all your senses. And I, again, you don't really realize how terrifying that is for another 
child I'd forgotten probably because maybe I'd grown immune to it or maybe I grew up with loads of it and Sienna was obviously in shock um and I, I just knew I never wanted to be that mum or that person mm. and I'm not saying I'm perfect I'm still on a journey and I'm still trying to understand but that was the starting point of my acceptance of of everything in my life my relationship with my dad my relationship with my stepmom my relationship with my family my siblings where I was on that journey because I was told when I was 13 you know, you are now their mum, but actually then no one then tells you when they've reached 18, 20, 25, whatever ages they were at by this point, that I don't need to be their mums anymore. My sister, my mom, my sister was a mum herself, you know, right. and I didn't need to be telling her how to do certain things or to follow sleep in school that I followed for Sienna. I mean, she was an adult and could make her own decisions. But funnily enough, I it took me two and a half years of therapy to understand when and how to break that cycle and to accept that my role now was to be the mum I wanted to be for not for Samira and Anita, but actually for Sienna and Ashan. And and then actually um, going back to grief, it was she had told me that whilst I was brewing this child, Ashan, in my belly, I, without even knowing it, had made a whole slew of expectations and stories and ambitions for him without knowing um, and created a life for a boy that I was as my son the son that I thought I was going to have and and there's a brilliant brilliant um story sort of and it's short story written by a doctor that my friend shared with me much later on but about you getting on a flight um you're all boarding this plane and uh, I don't know if you've heard this already or not um but the plane you think because everyone goes to Italy and everyone talks about it's a magical place in Italy and the beaches are wonderful and the pizza and the food is fantastic and the wine is just exquisite and the sunsets are just the most best thing in the world all your friends and all your passengers everyone in the world is going to Italy on this flight you get on this plane like and you've done everything that everyone else has done you've packed your luggage the same way you've gone through security the same way you've got you know you sat there on the plane you're about to go but the pilot does says this plane is landing in Holland Hmm. not in Italy and you think, wait a second, I didn't book a flight to Holland. I booked a flight to Italy. I, no, no, I want to go where everyone else is going. I need to go to Italy. I really need to go to Italy because that's where I'm supposed to be going. And and actually, you don't have any control over this. The pilot's driving the plane, not you, and you can't get off that flight. You are going to land in Holland, and you have a choice. Either accept the beauty that Holland has to offer, and it's got beautiful tulips, and it's got canals, and there's beautiful bike rides. But it's different to Italy, but it's still beautiful if you if you take the time to accept it mm. and and that was written by a physician I remember I'm obviously paraphrasing but me accepting that Ashan was never going to go on a flight with me to Italy he was actually going to take me to Holland was 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 what I call this my my sort of group but but in order to accept that we were going to Holland I had to grieve for the, for the nine months of the sun that I was sort of already made or the and then two and a half years after that I, I denied you know was going to be a little boy with autism you know I just kept thinking I could fix it out of him I could cure him out of whatever this thing that people think he might have is because I'm going to do everything I can and I threw everything at it I probably was running around like a headless chicken to every type of therapist um physician nutrition whatever you want to call it I was there I was mm-hmm. like well, how do I cure my son and whatever it's social communication disorders that you might have I was there I did it I threw whatever we could at it and and then actually it wasn't until I accepted it and I went for my therapy that he actually said his first word at four and a half five (laughs) that we found the right schools for him um and he became a happier boy he started sleeping through the nights better he started eating better I mean 
it was so interesting how much babies and children pick up off on energy, don't they? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's your energy. It's your anxiety that they start to feel and everything. As soon as you relax, they relax. Everyone tells you that, but you don't believe it until you've kind of gone through it yourself. It's, you really don't. You don't. It doesn't even, yeah, it doesn't happen until you, like you said, until you live and breathe it and then experience it. And that, that sort of synergy um, that, that that's created between those two energies until you really feel it. Um, and you felt it even with Sienna when, when, you know, over those purple Uggs, like there, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't great synergy, but it was still energy that made you realize, holy shit, like, okay, I, I need to do something about this. Um, and even the idea yeah. about the, about grief, like we talk about psychology or just sort of even, oh, you've mentioned hormones, you know, I think about fight, fight or flight, like our, our, we're wired to survive. And so starting at a young age with the loss of, of your mom, it was okay. I'm going to survive this. I'm going to move on, and and so you just continue to 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 do to do that until all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, um, this isn't. You know, I I don't even think this is the way it's supposed to be anymore. You, we're not wired, I think, to grieve naturally. Like I think we're wired to survive, but I don't think we're wired to grieve. Yeah. And it sounds like it took um, a lot of help and self awareness on your part um, to get to a point where you were like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to accept and grieve and then I'm going to move on. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I think that was, that was a tough thing. And I think, you know, just lots of people don't go through what you go through, but no one talks about it. So you don't know how alone you're feeling, um, until you're in it and you 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 don't talk about it because we're not, um, you know, you sort of talk about what can we do. And I know there are support networks and there probably are more and more groups and awareness now, but, I don't think there are that many people, especially when I was going through this around me, that was happy or that were going to be happy, especially if you're Indian, to talk about mm-hmm. um, the difficulties you're going through um, and being vulnerable. I think that's the other big word. You know, it takes courage to be vulnerable. That Brené Brown had taught me a lot through this, through her, through her um, terminology. And I think we hide vulnerability, don't we? We mm-hmm. we don't want it to be seen. We don't. We always want to be that strong, courageous woman. And again, I had huge examples. I had big feet to fill. I had my mum who who smiled right through her illness. It was had cancer and never stopped smiling, and and was probably my biggest role model. And and I wanted to be her. I wanted to emulate her. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be everything she was. And she never let me see how sad she was with her illness. And she never shared her grief. Obviously, I was only a kid. But um, in fact, one of her parting words with us was never stop believing in miracles you know i had three because she was told she was never going to have children there you go she yeah. had a um, uh, burst in appendicitis and i just assumed that whatever this whatever was going to happen to us was never going to be as mm-hmm. bad as what it was with losing her and i was going to make sure that we created a happy home and had kids you know i was going to have three kids just yeah. like she did and i was going to do all of the things that she did um and yet my life turned out to be very very different, different. to what well, i and you know you talked in about... my head <laughs> well you talked about daydreaming and even like you, you talk about you, you know your mom you know the moments that she most likely was vulnerable or wasn't feeling strong um, you know, what, what you saw wasn't that necessarily, but of course it, we know that it existed. Um, so this idea of role modeling. And so you built up this image of what you were going to be like when you got older and when you became a mom, um, you know, and even when you talked about the fact that you knew you needed to leave Vancouver and you said, I don't want to use the word coward to me, when I heard you say that I thought of courage, like that's a, that's a, for an Indian girl right. to get on a plane and leave Vancouver. I mean, that's a big deal. And so, you know, you've mentioned Brené yeah. Brown, Brown's work. Um, she, uh, when I read her, her, um, 
um, Daring Greatly, it literally changed my life, Ramita. Like I read that and I and some of the stuff that she talks about in terms of being enough and it's okay to be vulnerable. And she's got this really wonderful um, parenting manifesto, I think she calls it. Um, and it's just, yeah. ri- it's written so pure and real, like no bullshit. Like at the end of the day that all of this is okay. Yeah. And, but you know, like you said, yeah. growing up in, in whatever environment that we grow up in, sometimes it is one where there is secrecy and where there's high expectations and where there's suck it up and move on. And then until you come yeah. into your own, you know, for you coming into your own was in Ottawa with Uggs, <laughs> realizing, oh, yeah, wait a minute. That, okay, was, then. that was my, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't, you know, like Ariana Huffington says, she woke up, she woke up in a pool of blood. I mean, I woke up in a in a in a slush of snow and and realized this is not this is not it for me. Um, but thank God I had that moment, that epiphany, that whatever you want to call it, that life changing realization. Um, because I I'd also started to, to not like myself in this mm-hmm. stage of of who I was. I was approaching. 40, you know, late 30s, and my mom was obviously in her very early 30, 40s when she, she she sadly left us. So I obviously had this other weird, um, irrational, as my therapist is very happy, I used to use the word irrational fear of, of also dying and leaving my children behind and no one having to look after them. Um, with an added uh, pressure I put on myself is I don't want Sienna to have the burden that I had. Mm, you know, I wow. don't want her to be the big sister that I had to be. Um, for my own siblings. Um, no one told me I had to do Well, I mean, I, I, did, I was told by relatives, actually. <laughs> I was. No one stops to talk to you while you are. Um, they tell you, know, you're their mom now. It's such a strange phrase. I mean, really? I, I, they don't even have my period. You know, it was just it was so interesting. But um, <laughs> I am their mom. Okay. Um, so, you know, and, and you don't, you take it for, for what it's worth and you sort of become what you're told, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I was so scared. I was so scared that I was also going to end up with cancer and I was going to leave in my early 40s and I was going to... So turning 40 was a really big turning point again in my life. So I'm 42 um, now uh, and I've almost hit 43, Mom, which is where my mom was. And it makes me think, God, how young she really was um, when she had to go and how hard it must have been for her to leave three little kids behind. Um, again, you don't think about any of it from her perspective until you're at that age and you're your mom yourself and you think about the things that the emotions that she must have been going through and who did she have to talk to? You know, she didn't want her mom to know in mm-hmm. India that she was sick. So she never told her mom. And her mom went to her grave with not being able to see her daughter um, because my mom didn't have that much time, actually. And, and it happened so fast, she didn't do it. And so this whole cycle of, of grief, acceptance, grief, acceptance, where are we? Where are we going to go next? What, what are we going to do when life throws something at you that isn't planned or part of the play and that whole kind of meditative thing about living in the present and not worrying so much about what's happening tomorrow it's kind of become my new manifesto you know it's, <laughs> I, i'm gonna stop i'm gonna i'm gonna stop worrying about what Sean's gonna do for gcse's he's he's nine you know i'm gonna just get him through the day and and, and i love i love his school's motto which is redefining success nice. um you know, in Singapore is yeah in Singapore, and I just sort of think right. You need to define success for yourself, and, or I needed to redefine it for ourselves. What is success for Sean? What is success for Sienna? What is success for me? What is success for Paris? And together, how do we come together as a family to make sure that we 
we we are living each day as happily and yeah. as calmly and as peacefully no. as we might want to. Absolutely, and I love that you like even now as I was going to ask for you know your closing thoughts and and maybe we're there, but even the way that you defined. Um, your this is your own manifesto now in terms of living in the moment and and you know the school's motto and how you separated it for each one of you because I think that's so important because what success looks like for you will be different for Ishan and different for Sienna and different for Paris but yet of course you're you're a family unit and so then how do you take all four of those and combine it into one for the Anand family in terms of what that looks like and I think that there's a lot of power there's a lot of power in thinking that way versus you and I grew up being told that we should be a doctor or a lawyer right and neither one of us is that Mm. (laughs) but no no we've got to yeah it's so true it's it it is so interesting and obviously you know, we're sort of now second generation Indians living in a Western world. And so you and I as moms will have different messages for our children. Um, but it's funny how your own upbringing shapes a lot of that. So I do sometimes look at my daughter's assignments and I, you know, she, she gives me her, her paper at 80 something percent. And, and it's a great mark. I mean, I'm very happy for her. But I, in my head, because I know my daughter and I know how naturally gifted she is, that if she'd worked a little bit harder you know she might have got 90 so I <laughs> I have to stop myself to going to where my dad went and my you know to us as kids and say what happened to the other 80 percent in a 20 percent where is that what, what that's not you you don't get B's you always get A's you know and I I constantly battle between that that balance between being the mum that I want to be in, in my head, you know, but also making sure my daughter fills her own expectation, you know, fulfills yeah. herself or it doesn't sell herself short and being there to guide her in a way where she's not. Um, yeah. And same for Sean. Like I know I, I push him and I push him really hard sometimes and I make him cry when he's doing his work with me and it, it, it's hard. It, it's, it's really tough. But if I, if I don't, I know we're never gonna, I don't know. I don't know who's going to set this and, you know, this, goalposts for these kids I, I feel mm-hmm. like we put so much pressure on them but the balance is hard to get I, I, that's my struggle at the moment so if I have an intensification to think about you know in the next stage of my of, of their upbringing is how do I make sure they grow up to be happy kind decent people I don't care if they get into med school and go to Harvard what I want to make sure is that what they do is makes them happy yep. but that's it's successful easy. in their own definition absolutely yeah. yeah it made me think of when you said um the type because you know we've, we we talk all the time and we've got you know similar ideas and thoughts and the type of mom that i want to be versus the type of mom that they need me to be and i right. i find myself talking thinking along those lines so much very similar to what you're talking about with my dad wondering how come it wasn't this or how come you didn't score more points in your basketball game or and they and they all they they tried yeah. the best that they could i don't see it as a criticism that's just how they're that's what they were like when they were parents and so you're right about the balance it's not it's not easy and you know it doesn't matter how many books no. we read until we live and breathe the experience we don't even know what we kind of, what kind of moms we want to be and you know and, and yeah. we don't know like we're just sort of figuring it out as we go too really yeah and i think that's the nice thing now i think our culture with the way podcasts or what you're doing the work that you're doing or the books or ted talks is that there's more of an avenue to explore and find other people that are in similar situations or feeling as vulnerable as you are or as ashamed as you are or as scared as you are or as lonely as you are because they're writing about it they're talking about it um i don't know if in my in our mom's generation growing up in vancouver has first 
generation kind of immigrants moving, setting up life that they did for their children. And I don't, you can't, like you said, you, this no criticism is actually admiration for what they did for us and mm-hmm. how they raised us and where they got us. Um, but did they have anyone to talk to? Maybe that was like what the community was for them. Maybe that's why they had their Saturday night parties or their weekend. <laughs> Maybe. I don't, I, you know, what they did. I'm not sure because I feel that sense of connection with other women or friends or mums or, you know, it doesn't have to be the same gender, but it it sort of helps. That's the other thing I've realised, you know, like we, you and I had a wonderful opportunity to spend a girls weekend in Miami and I, that that memory will stick with me because it was so powerful in, in being able to share and connect and and experience with other people. Everyone has their and the thing is everyone has their own challenges. Whatever we think, there's no perfect life out there for anyone, even though it looks like it. And I think maybe social media or things can change that view quite quickly. And, and everyone we think whatever they're doing is so much happier or better than where we are. And Actually, as you and I realize that when we sit with a group of six women that maybe you didn't know before the trip, everyone has their own baggage or their own difficulties or their own hurdles. It's how we cope with them. And if we share each other's um, pain or whatever you want to call it, challenges with one another, I think it empowers each of us mm-hmm. to feel stronger about it. Absolutely. No, you're not alone. That you're not alone, absolutely, and 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 it takes courage and being vulnerable to share. And then when you and when we do, like you said, the connections that are made, the learning, the feeling of support that comes from that. Like I'm grateful that I I'm a bit more of an open book than I was before. You know, still mindful of what I share, but being okay that if I'm yeah. going to share this, I'm not going to be worried. Oh, well, what are they going to think? It it took a long time to get yeah. there. But I am happier because I, like you said, I, like look how much I'm able to learn and and grow because I'm sharing and someone's sharing with me and sort of it not being fake. Like you know, I'm imperfect. Yeah. I suck at a lot of stuff, but that's okay. Yeah. I still love myself. It's all good. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it takes yeah, a long time absolutely. to get there. And you're you're so right. And I, I've learned that on my in my sort of transition to teaching kids with additional learning difficulties when I retrained as a as a teacher in that way, because I sit on the other side of the table, you know, I've been there with Ishan as a mum, sitting at school interviews saying, is this going to work for my son? Is this going to work? God, please say yes, you'll take my son and you can help him. To the other end, being that teacher, uh, trying to talk to parents about the fact there might be something um, underlying that's a barrier to their learning or your child might be suffering from something. Let's let's explore this and see what... seeing how hard the journey is like you never want to hear there is anything not imperfect because that is what makes your child but that could be wrong possibly with my child and not that having dyslexia or adhd is wrong but it's it's different it's not what you expected it's, it's not, not something trip, you know it's not the trip to italy <laughs> yes yes you know somehow your plane is being diverted to holland and you don't want to go there yeah. and you do everything in your power and it's to your child's detriment that's what's hard is 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 knowing that in your own world of trying to cope with your kids difficulties what I think parents forget is what you're doing is harming your child and what their happiness really is and what they need is not to be in a highly competitive school where everyone else is going to be knocking their confidence because they need to work at a slower pace or they need to work in smaller classroom settings or they need to have all of this and, and acceptance again that, that, that this is the route that you're the journey that your child is on and helping your child um, achieve the success them is only going to be again if you allow yourself to be vulnerable to be honest to be open to share it with their school or wherever teachers whoever around you is your support network 
is to build that support network because I God knows we have such a long way with Ashan, but I know, I hand on heart every day I'm grateful for the support I got from his speech therapist, his teachers at school. You know, I held up my hand because I, I feel like they held my hand through mm-hmm. the journey as much as they held Ashan's. Um and and that is what's given me the passion and the drive to carry on working and training and, and, and learning about kids with learning difficulties because I want to be able to give that back to other mums and other dads that, that may end up with kids that, you know, aren't on the flight to Italy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and your your passion shows just in what you just said right now, like you, you that you, you speak with such conviction that I think it's just it's just beautiful and and I say that with in the most tender way possible because like you describe the stuff that you've that you've gone through and and getting to a place of acceptance and then what you're wanting to do with that not just for yourself in terms of growth and for the kids and for Paris but for others I think it's just amazing it takes a lot of strength oh, thanks I mean what you're doing is amazing too I'm really grateful I've got friends as, like you because I think that's what teaches you, you know, the sharing and the caring and all of that is 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 um, so important. And and I and I, I just I mentioned a few people, but I'll tell you another woman who this book I can't stop reading and I have probably read twice in such a long as Michelle Obama's book. You know, I think of what she does with the power that she's had um, for girls in education, for just health and everything. I just think, gosh, if she can do all of that. Um, and and we can do even a, a fraction of that in, in in the tiny community that you live in then then i'm gonna you're gonna keep on going there are so many people to look up to out there and, and i i love it i cannot wait for folks to hear to hear your story honestly i think it's so i mean when i asked you in miami <laughs> i'm doing a podcast with you <laughs> it was um... i know i was so scared i couldn't believe it <laughs> We'll just learn together. You know, I've never really done this before either. But, um, you know, you talked about inspiration and, you know, maybe it's odd because I've known you for as long as I have. But I I just find you're just so inspiring, Ramita. And, you know, I've I've told you that many, many times. And I I thought, well, you know what? Your story is is a beautiful one that if you're willing to share it, let's let's do that. So. Yeah, thank you so oh, much. Oh, well, that's so kind of you. I, I, I'm, I'm equally inspired by everything that you're doing, and I am so feel so grateful to have a friend that I can learn so much from, and I, I feel blessed that we've been given this platform to share, um, and even if it, if it helps a few people out there that might be struggling um, to, to think about life in a slightly different way, and everything gets, so you, I promise you, it gets better <laughs> before it gets worse. <laughs>
perfect human beings that are going to become the success that we so dream of them so badly, but actually, you know, letting them fall and then teaching them the skills to how and cope with how to get up is probably the biggest gift we can give our kids. Absolutely. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to let you go and, and say thank you again for, for sharing so candidly um, everything that you have. Thank you. Oh, I love you, love for, you too. for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for having me.